Okay, it's time to take your seat if you would. Thank you. Good morning. My name's Matt Turnbull, and I've had the privilege of going to Redeemer for almost five years in about three or four weeks, so that's pretty exciting for me and my family. Today we get to talk about Psalm 146, and we get to first start out by reading Psalm 146, so let's stand and read, read the Word of God together. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. I will praise the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praises to God, to my God, while I have my being. Put not your trust in princes, in a son of man in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever, who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless, but the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. The Lord will reign forever. Your God, O Zion, to all generations. Praise the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. In book 12 of Augustine's Confessions, I've, I've gotten the chance to study that this summer in assistance of one of the professors on campus. Augustine wrote these wonderful things. He said, my heart is deeply stirred, O Lord, when in this poor life of mine, the words of your holy scripture strike upon it. Let's pray that God would do that for us today. Father, we ask that as Augustine said, the, that your holy words would strike deeply on our hearts, that our hearts would be deeply stirred by your words. We pray that you would help us see you through the words of this psalm, and we pray that you'd be glorified in our hearts, in our minds, in our beings as we think about and consider what you are saying to us. And we pray that you would give us the power by your Holy Spirit to live in a new way as a function of meeting you today. We ask that in Jesus' name, amen. So I ask you to open your Bible. And if you don't have a Bible, to, to pick the one up in the tray in front of you, uh, under the seat in front of you. There's something good that happens to you and I when we have a book in our hands. Our attention on our, tra it, it transforms and focuses our attention. So if you wouldn't mind, just for my sake, actually opening your Bible, because we're just going to look at Psalm 146 today. And Psalm 146 is two things. The first is, it's a call to a certain kind of prayer. It is a call for us to praise God, and if you think about it, praise actually is prayer. It's interacting with God, and in this Psalm, God, first of all, is calling us to praise Him as a way of life. The second thing this psalm is, is a powerful argument by way of comparison. And it's arguing by comparison in, 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 in a way to try to convince us of something. 
And this way of arguing is actually a very ancient way of arguing. Um, people, smart people like Cicero used to make some of his arguments by way of comparison. But it's not original with the Romans and with Cicero because the psalmist whom we're reading today lived hundreds of years before that, and that's the very kind of argument he's using in this psalm. He's trying to compare two things in order to persuade his readers, and in this case, that's you and that's me, that we should, A, put our trust in one thing and not in another, and secondly, B, we should praise that one thing every single day. So that's what's going on in Psalm 146. So let's look at verses 1 and 2, which we could call the call to prayer. He says, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. I will praise the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. Now, the first thing I want us to notice here is whom the psalmist is addressing. He's addressing his own soul. And amazingly, if we look at that, this tells us three things about ourselves as well as the psalmist. With apologies to materialists in our culture who believe that all we are is matter and that all our thoughts and dreams and love boil down to is chemicals moving around in our brains, our psalmist has a word for those materialists. We have souls. And we, as a consequence, are both material and immaterial beings. And when you think about that, it's an occasion to praise God for being wondrously and fearfully made. Secondly, besides having souls, we learn from this verse, we learn by implication there's another part of us that is not our body and that is not our souls that can look at our souls and give it instructions. When the psalmist says, praise the Lord, my soul, Who's talking? <laughs> is, that, is that the psalmist's mind? Is that the psalmist's spirit? I mean, we don't exactly know. But what we do know is that there's a part of the psalmist and a part of you and me that can talk to our own souls. Truly, we're fearfully and wonderfully made. And the third thing I think that this verse implies is that we have to give instructions at times to our souls. Your soul and my soul become discouraged, downhearted, and even very often distracted by the pull of earthly things and earthly responsibilities. And so in those times, we have to give commands to our souls. So the, the psalmist says to his soul, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. There are times when you need to do that. You need to look at your discouraged or your distracted soul and tell your soul exactly what to do. David did this. In fact, he recorded it in Psalm 42. He said, why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. So before we go on, we should note that verse 1 and 2 are also one other thing besides telling us those things about our being. Verse 1 and 2 are, are, are showing us a declaration of commitment. It's the kind of declaration, in fact, that lives, that results in a lifestyle. My wife and I just watched two people commit themselves for the rest of their lives in marriage. It was a beautiful thing yesterday. And what the psalmist is doing here is he's making a declaration about the way he's going to live the rest of his life. Note when he says he's going to praise the Lord. He says, I will praise the Lord while I live. And he also says, while I have my being. Well, when is that? 
I think it's probably all the time. I think it's probably every day. Now, of course, you have to talk to your family. You have to eat and things like that. I don't think he's saying that every single second of my entire being, I'm going to praise the Lord. I think he's saying I'm going to live in a way that I'm reflecting on God constantly, and I'm giving him praise. So he's our example, the psalmist. We should make a daily, even hourly habit of praising the Lord, regardless of the willingness or unwillingness of our souls, regardless of the attention or distraction of our souls, even regardless of the the severity or the depth of darkness of our circumstance in that particular moment, the psalmist is saying we need it. In fact, in Psalm 147, the psalmist says that praise is fitting and pleasant for human beings. So, Praise changes us, and the first two verses of Psalm 146 are a call for us to pray by praising God, even every hour through the rest of his life. Okay, so let's practice that along with the psalmist. Now, that was the call to praise God, and now we come to the second part and the rest of the psalm, which is the argument by way of comparison. And as a preview, the psalmist is going to hold the best that humanity has to offer to you and I next to the character and works of God. That's the comparison he's going to make. And the key question he's asking as he makes that comparison is this, to whom should you look? Or to whom should you look for help and hope? To put a sharper point on it, when you're in deep distress, in whom or what? Should your soul trust? Here's what the text says. Put not your trust in princes. This is verse 3. Put not your trust in princes, in a son of man in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. And on that very day, his plans perish. God is speaking to us through the psalmist in this verse. And he's saying to us very clearly, do not trust in a son of man. Now, what does that phrase, son of man, literally mean? Well, it literally means son of the red earth. And in Hebrew, it's the the phrase, ben adam, which is literally son of Adam. In other words, the psalmist is talking about people, human beings. And he's saying that after encouraging our souls to praise God, the psalmist is really warning us to not set our ultimate hope or to put our ultimate trust or to draw our ultimate security from other human beings. In fact, this command is not simply to not trust in people, but actually this command is a trust to not even trust in the most powerful or noble of people, which the psalmist calls the prince in this case. Okay, let's talk about that word prince just for a second. We don't have princes in our culture. Um, We have prince-like people or princess-like people. I guess we have lots of princesses when they're young, don't we? But the point is that this word combines several notions. It combines the notion of benevolence. It combines the the notion of noble-heartedness. And it also implies power. So, so if, if you want to think about it in modern terms, it's, it's the best kind of powerful human being with the best motives. If you gave Mother Teresa the powers of Joe Biden, that's what we're talking about when we're talking about the prince in this, in this psalm, okay? 
So of all people, surely if Mother Teresa had the powers of Joe Biden, surely that's a person I could put my trust in, right? That kind of princely person is the kind of person I could legitimately hope in and put my trust in. But the psalmist, notice in verse 3 and 4, takes a very dim view of that practice. He knows we're tempted to put our trust and to, to, to set our hope for real life and real safety in other people, especially in people who are kind-hearted toward us, especially in people who are both kind-hearted and powerful and have money and influence. It's very tempting for us to put our trust in those kind of people. But he says we cannot do that. We cannot do that. We can't put our ultimate trust in people. When he says put not, he means do not. So the psalmist gives us, fortunately in this same passage, one really clear reason for this. And that is, there is no salvation in human beings. There is no salvation in human beings. Now, people can provide for us lots of things that we long for and that we need and we want. I mean, for example, they can give us things we enjoy. My parents gave me lots of wonderful presents as an example for Christmas. Every Christmas, my parents gave me lots of wonderful things. They can be our companions. They can bring us great happiness. They can become the object of our love and affection and service. And they really can, to a degree, do those things. Nevertheless, the psalmist is showing us they cannot save us in an ultimate sense. Why not? Well, partly, if we think about it, is this. The needs of your soul are much deeper and more desperate than that which another human being can meet. And as a consequence, we don't just need someone to give us a ride when our car is broken. We don't just need someone to help us with home repair when we have no idea what to do with the plumbing. We don't just need someone to, who has money to help us pay our bills that we're behind on. We do need those things, and God does use people to help us in circumstances like that. But we actually need someone to save our souls. And that is something no human being can do. We need someone who was, as the writer of Hebrews said, tempted like we are, but never sinned. We need someone who is completely unafraid of all the scary things in our world. We need someone who actually knows the intimate contours of all of our loneliness and sorrow from the inside. And we need someone who will actually never leave us and never forsake us. In other words, the psalmist is implying we need a high priest who can sympathize with our weakness and yet has triumphed over death and hell and our sin. That sympathizing and that triumph is something no mere person, not even a benevolent prince or princess or minister or president or prime minister can offer to you or to me. Not even the best-hearted parent, I would say, um, can do this for their child. And just by the way, this is why I take big issue with Marlon in the Pixar movie Finding Nemo when he says to Nemo, I will always come for you. It's a beautiful, beautiful thought, and he means it sincerely. But dad can't always come for you. Why can't a dad always come for you? Or why can't a noble-hearted prince be your savior? 
Well, here's an example that will answer this question clearly. Um, many years ago, I was in the middle of teaching a literature t- class to some very squirrely but bright junior high students on November 3rd, 2005, when Christy called my cell phone. It was much more rustic back then. And I excused myself in the middle of class abruptly and went out to the hallway because I was expecting her call because we knew that day we were going to hear the results of the biopsy she'd had. Of course, I will never forget that moment or the fabric on the wall that I was staring at when I talked to her. And we learned, after just three weeks ago learning she was pregnant with Bella, we learned that she had cancer. And she said, it's cancer. And that short sentence, as you can imagine, changed our lives and began one of the hardest, darkest, longest, darkest, I said darkest twice. Well, it needs to be dark. It was really dark in our lives. And by God's grace and mercy, we all lived. And the cool thing is, there's Christy right there. She lived, too. And for a while there, we thought she wasn't going to. But in that time, I really could have used my dad's presence and help and encouragement when my wife had cancer. And while I know that my dad would have wished to have been there, it was not in his power. My wife had cancer. We had lots of little kids at home, and my dad wasn't there. He did not come for me. Why? Because my dad had died 11 years before that time. As the psalm says, his spirit departed, he returned to the earth, and his thoughts perished. Now, of course, you know, I know that my dad had lots of plans for my welfare. And if my dad could have been there, he would have been there. The point is that all his plans, like every good father's plans, died with him. And that is exactly why you and I cannot put our ultimate trust in human beings, even the powerful, generous-hearted, noble, princely kind of people. They are mortal, says the psalmist, and their spirit is vulnerable to departing, and their thoughts are vulnerable to perishing, and they are not actually capable of saving our souls. And that's the psalmist's warning against an all-too-common temptation that you and I face all the time. We cannot put our ultimate trust in people. So then the question is, who can save us? In whom can we put our trust? And the psalmist gives us an answer by way of comparison. He's shown us what the best a human being can offer, and now he's going to show us God in contrast. Look at verse 5. He says, Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever. Now, according to verse 5, we should put our trust, we should put our ultimate trust, we should entrust our souls into the hands of the God of Jacob. In fact, the songwriter is pronouncing a blessing upon the person who finds their help and their hope in God. And note the blatant implication of that. He's basically saying that we should not trust ultimately in a human person, but we should trust in the Lord because in him, while there's no salvation in people, there is actually salvation in God. So God is speaking to us. Oh, I'm sorry. That was the last page. So the point is the psalmist is giving us a litany of reasons why we should look to God as our help and our hope starting with this point. And while it's mortality that makes human beings unable to bear the weight of our ultimate trust, 
And it's, more, it, it's actually more than just immortality that makes God um, able to bear our ultimate trust. And so we're going to watch the psalmist unfold this beautiful progression before us of all these substantive reasons why we can put our hope, our ultimate trust, in God, the God of Jacob. First, verse 6, he says, God made heaven and earth and the sea. That's the sky and the land and the ocean, everything that fills them. For the songwriter of Psalm 146, whether it's David or Nehemiah, people speculate who wrote this psalm, knowing that God made the world is a sufficient reason to put our ultimate trust in him. So we could think about that comparison for a moment. Let's make it a little bit more vivid. I was thinking for yesterday about what kind of amazing things noble-hearted, generous, powerful people have done in the earth, you know, with their power. If you love literature, you know that Jean Valjean transformed a small French village through his benevolence and his influence. If you're not a literature lover yet, um, you could consider the historical works of benevolent people throughout history. I was thinking, what if one noble-hearted prince or princess had made one of the largest cities on the face of the earth just benevolently, built all the businesses and homes, and then had just provided that for a group of millions of people? And so I was thinking, how about Tokyo? Tokyo is the largest urban area on, on the surface of our planet right now. What if one human being had made Tokyo as a benevolent gift to 38 million people? That hasn't happened, as we know. Tokyo's grown over many years, and lots of people have, have been involved in its construction. But let's just say, for, for the sake of example, that this benevolent princely person did that. Now, Tokyo is, it, it is the largest urban area. It does hold over 38 million people. It's twice as big as the New York urban area. It covers an area of 13,000 square kilometers, which means nothing to me, but it does cover 5,200 square miles. I can understand that. That's a land area about 70 by 75 miles. That's a major thing that human beings have done if we just think about it. That's a large city to build. It took many years. But for our purposes, remember, we're pretending that one human prince did that for all these people he cared for. Now, by comparison, the psalmist is asking us to realize that there is this God who made the world. There's this God who made the world. There's this prince who made this beautiful big city, but there's this God who made the world that the city sits on. Now, the world, as you know, is much larger than 5,200 square miles. In fact, Texas alone, as I'm sure you're very aware, is very large, 270,000 square miles, actually. But the area of Earth is 197 million square miles. That's slightly larger than Tokyo. And so far, even just beginning, it feels like God is winning this comparison contest. He's much more powerful than the human prince. But this God that the psalmist is describing did not just make the surface of the land on which the earth, on which we live, but he providentially invested the earth with all kinds of what we now call, in a secular way, natural resources, which are just providential gifts that God, in anticipation, invested the fabric of his world with when we, so that we could have it when we needed it. Isn't that amazing? 
In fact, every bit of materials that this prince or princess used to make Tokyo was provided for by God in raw material fashion. And so our God, this God that the psalmist is describing, didn't just provide for the needs of 38 million people in Tokyo. He actually provides for billions and billions of people every day. And that's not all. Because we cheat and we read other books in the Bible, we know that God didn't just create this world. He created all the worlds. He created all the worlds. Okay, for starters, let's just talk about the world in, worlds in our, our solar system. Consider Jupiter for a moment. The Earth's surface, as I just said, I'm sure you memorized it, is 197 million square miles in area. Jupiter has a surface area of 23 billion square miles. And according to NASA, we could fit our entire Earth 1,300 times inside Jupiter. That is a very large planet, and God made it. Much bigger than Tokyo, much bigger than the Earth. Okay, but that's not all that God made, as you know. In our solar system, we have a star right in the middle of our solar system. In fact, this star keeps our whole solar system into this beautiful pattern, this circular pattern. Actually, elliptical, but you know what I'm saying. And the point is that Jupiter is much smaller than the sun. Our sun's just a middle-sized star, and Jupiter itself could fit into the sun 1,300 times. Wow. Okay. Our home planet, if you're doing your math, could fit in way over a million times. A million Earths in the sun. Easy. The point is, I ask you by way of comparison, if the most powerful, benevolent human prince could make a city for 38 million people, covering a landmass of 70 by 75 square miles. And the God this psalmist is describing created not only the 197 square mile earth that we live on, its land, its sky, its sea, but this God also made the planet Jupiter. He created the sun out of nothing, the solar system, the entire Milky Way galaxy, which consists of over 100,000 million suns, and an uncountable number of planets that accompany them in orbit. And he made all the millions, possibly more, galaxies in our universe. We're going to find out on Tuesday from the James Webb Telescope. Make sure you watch the news. It's very exciting. Actually, I'm being serious. It's very exciting. And he holds all of this together in this magical cosmic dance that if you and I could see it, we would be silent in awe for a hundred years. That benevolent God who's omnipotent compared to the benevolent prince, the psalmist is asking, in whose care should you place your soul? Think about it. But the psalmist is not done. As Vizzini says, not remotely. Verse 6, he goes on to say that this God who made all things, he keeps faith forever. When he makes a promise, it is guaranteed by his character. And there's no English word that can capture the security and the solidity and the surety and the finality of that guarantee. This God is steadfast and trustworthy, and he does not waver. In fact, he doesn't waver forever. Human beings make promises they don't keep. 
But human beings also make promises they can't keep, like Marlon to Nemo. He kept it in the movie, but there would be a time when he couldn't come for him. And despite their best intentions, human princes even die, and their plans and their promises die with them. But the psalmist is speaking to our souls right now and saying, you should trust this God because he is eternally faithful. Let's look at the next three verses. The Lord executes justice for the oppressed. He gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless, but the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. Sadly, we don't even have time to talk about the beautiful poetic structure that the psalmist is using in that section. But we can easily think that this God, okay, we just talked about how, how, how powerful he is to sustain the entire massive universe, the heavenly bodies and all the cosmic architecture that comprise the universe. It would be easy for us to think that he's so focused on the macro scale of things, on the big things, that he doesn't have time to care about what, maybe from Jupiter's perspective, looks like a bunch of skin mites crawling on the surface of this blue planet in our solar system, right? As David said to God when he looked up at the night sky, what is man that you take thought of him? We get that. And as, as if he was anticipating our mistake, the psalmist is adjusting his focus way down on what this God, God does on the surface of the earth. Verse 7, this Savior, not the human one, this Savior executes justice for the oppressed. Now, before we proceed, I just think it's very interesting right here. Notice, God doesn't always prevent people from being oppressed. In fact, in our world, and the sad state of our world, we have a living testimony that God allows people to be oppressed. He allows them to be hungry. He allows them to be blind. He allows them to be bowed down. So that is the nature of our world, and we believe that God is in charge of it. So he's allowing that to happen. However, and the psalmist knows this, however, far from being a pretext for assuming that either God is unaware because he's so worried about the cosmic scale of things, or that he doesn't exist, these human sufferings are actually an occasion for God to demonstrate his faithfulness. God does allow us to suffer. That is a hard truth for us who hope in him. And our experience teaches us, and our scriptures make clear, that he does allow us to suffer. And he allows us to suffer for a while. But the beautiful message of this psalm is that he does not only wait. He does not only wait. He also delivers people. It's been said that we can never see God's deliverance if we never need it. And while we would prefer, I would prefer, to live in a world with no danger and no suffering that was safe and happy, that's actually what God is preparing for us at the present moment. We just can't see it. We're not there yet. But while we wish that was this world and we're to pray that his kingdom would come and his will would be done, nevertheless, the psalmist is helping us realize that our experience of these very things are what cause us to cry out to God. They're what cause us to recognize our need for him. 
And what he wants us to realize in his song is that this God that he's describing executes justice for people who are oppressed. There will be a day when someone in this world who's being oppressed will be rescued by God as they call out to him. He will come. There will be a day, as Isaiah says, when you and I will say, this is our God for whom we have waited. And that day is a real day. He will deliver, the psalmist says. This God delivers people who are oppressed. So we should trust in this God who delivers human beings from suffering. And it seems to me that this part, this first part of verse 7, is sort of a prelude and an and a, and a, and a introduction to all these examples of God executing justice and delivering people in the rest of verse 7 through 9. So really it's a list of the many ways that God is saving human beings who are in grave need. Look at them with me for just a second and see each of them actually not just as a part of a psalm but as prods to your soul to trust in God. Look what he says in verse 7. We should trust him because he gives food to the hungry. We should trust him because he sets prisoners free. We should trust him because he opens the eyes of the blind. We should trust him because he raises up people who are bowed down. We should trust him because he loves the righteous. We should trust this God because he protects strangers or newcomers, we could say. We should trust him because he supports orphans and widows and other people who are disenfranchised and can be helpless. We should trust him because he thwarts the way of the wicked. Now, I just want you to know, God is not passive in this passage. I mean, think of all the active verbs. Look what God is doing. He's allowing people to, to experience on the earth, his very children, hunger, blindness, oppression, the death of a wife or husband, the death of a parent. He allows us to experience true, real, protracted at times suffering. But the point of this psalm is suffering is not the end of the story. Our suffering, your suffering and mine, is not the end of the story. The end of the story occurs when God acts. And what the psalmist is saying is the end comes and God will deliver us. That is precisely why you are called by this song to put your active trust in God. Because it's not merely that he can do these things, which will serve as reasons for you to trust him. And it's not merely that you trust in him because he's so very powerful in the abstract. But rather, you're encouraged to trust him because he does do these things. Because he does act. He does deliver people. He does feed the hungry. He does save people's souls. So if we went back and looked at the, at the psalm again, and this section especially, and actually Matthew Henry's the one who helped me see it, we would realize that, that verse 7 through 9 are simply describing the things that Jesus does to people. They're telling us the things he did hundreds of years later to people in, in Palestine. All of these things describe what Jesus did to people who were in desperate need when he was on the earth. He brought justice to people who were oppressed spiritually and physically. He fed 5,000 hungry people. He released many people from a prison of fear and spiritual possession and disease. He provided for strangers and widows and orphans. He raised the dead, and he raised up other people who were bowed down. I mean, think about it. Remember 
Remember the woman in Mark chapter 5 who'd been hemorrhaging for 12 years? We learn about her in the Gospels. In fact, she's in three of the Gospels. If any person was, she was a person bowed down. And Mark says in, in chapter 5, he says, There was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years. She had suffered much under many physicians. <laughs> I love that phrase. <laughs> um, okay, yes, physicians are helping us, but it hurts. And she had spent all that she had, and yet she was no better but grew worse. She was suffering for years, Mark's telling us. For years she was suffering, not a year, for years and years, and her suffering was only growing worse. And in fact, no amount of money could cure her, as she discovered. No person could cure her, as she discovered. Nothing could heal her. And also, in addition to that, nothing could heal her uncleanness, ritually speaking. Right? This is Jewish culture, as you know. So her story, her life story had become dominated by poverty and shame. And separation from people. In in Leviticus 15, the Old Testament law reads um, that if a woman has a discharge of blood for many days, not at the time of her menstrual impurity, or if she has a discharge beyond the time, all the days of the discharge, she shall continue in uncleanness. As in the days of her impurity, she, she shall be unclean. It goes on and says everything she sits on is considered unclean. Everything she touches is considered unclean. Everyone who touches her is considered unclean. This is the ritual purity laws in in Leviticus. This woman lived under uncleanness for 12 whole years. That's 12 Passovers. But Mark tells us that she heard these reports about Jesus. And she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. And she said, if I can just touch his garments... I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in herself that she was healed of her disease. She reached out and trusted Jesus, and she touched him with that trust. And what no human prince could do, the prince of peace did for this woman who was unclean. Mark goes on, he says, Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, you can see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you're saying, who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. Now we have to imagine what that would be like for the woman, the joy she would feel at being finally healed after 12 long years, but at the same time, suddenly mixed with the sense of fear and shame. She's an unclean person. She's prohibited by law from touching another person, and especially in Jewish culture, from touching a man. And even more, this is just not any man. All of her friends and many of the people she's with believe this is a prophet sent from God. So she, an an unclean woman with an incurable disease, dared to, to reach out and touch the garments of this prophet. This is why Mark tells us, he says, knowing what had happened to her, she came in fear and trembling and fell down before Jesus and told him the whole truth. Think about it. All those people are looking at her on the ground. They're surrounding her. She's prostrated herself at Jesus' feet. And by telling Jesus the whole story, she's just re-exposing her shame and her sorrow to all these people. 
She knows she's guilty of transgressing the purity laws. Her embarrassment has to be indescribable. She's completely vulnerable. The woman and the crowd are poised and waiting to know what this prophet's going to do with this woman. Who is Jesus? And we learn from Psalm 146, he's the Lord who raises up those who are bowed down. Mark says, Jesus said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. For just a second, I want you to think what that would mean for you if you were her. Guilty before the law, unclean in the sight of her culture, poor, stricken, to hear Jesus Christ speak to her, to your soul that's bowed down before him, daughter, peace. That's this God the psalmist is describing. This is the Lord who raises up people who are bowed down. The final verse of Psalm 146 says this, the Lord will reign forever. Your God, O Zion, to all generations. Praise the Lord. Verse 10 tells us at the end, there is no end to the reign or kingdom of this God. Unlike a human savior, his spirit never departs. His substance never returns to the earth. He made the earth. His thoughts never perish. Rather, he reigns forever. This God, your God, reigns to all generations. So if we reflect on this large comparison the psalmist has made, we realize there is no comparison. The Lord, he is God. The Lord who heals and feeds and delivers and raises up those who are bowed down, he is God. And it's into his hands the psalmist is urging you to commit your soul. And no wonder he ends the psalm in the way he does. He's not just telling us to put our hope in him. He's not just telling us to look to him for our ultimate help and trust, but he's telling you to praise him, to actively engage in expressing that trust and that hope by praising him while you live, by praising him while you have your being, by spending the rest of your life from this day forward praising the Lord. Let's pray.